All right, if you haven't already, take out the sermon notes and turn in your Bible or on your app to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And uh, how many of you realize that parents have to repeat themselves to their children many times? I don't even have to say that, do I? Yeah. So, so this is kind of what Solomon is doing here. This is really a continuation of the, the end of Pastor Steve's sermon last week from chapter 5. So we're going to start in chapter 5 and look at verse 18 through 20. So Solomon says, Behold, what I have seen to be a good, and f- good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift from God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Wouldn't we all want a little piece of that? Not remember all of the, the former days, but because we have so much joy that's got, that God has given us in our hearts. That'd be great. But it says that God can do that for us. So last week, I think Pastor Steve said this was kind of a turning point for Solomon where, you know, the uh, kind of the, the downer of Ecclesiastes Solomon realized, oh, there is good in this world. There is good in toiling in this life, and it's a gift from God for a couple verses. And then very quickly, he moves back to uh, Debbie Downer, Solomon. So look at, look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says, There is an evil I've seen under the sun and lies heavy on mankind. So this, this particular evil... He says, lies heavy on mankind. This means it's like a very heavy master that stands and rules over us. He says, there's an evil out there. And he he mentions a couple of these things throughout Ecclesiastes, and this is just another evil that he sees. And so I would say that chapter 6 is actually a tragedy. It's not a very uh, happy chapter. But we'll try to find the hope in it, and I think there's a lot of it. So look at verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So it says that God gives this man wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of what he desires. We'd all like a piece of that too, wouldn't we? So all of the wealth, all of the possessions, we can have whatever our eyes see. And whenever we walk in the room, people are like, wow. And they just honor us. And maybe they all stand up because we're so wonderful. We all crave that, don't we? And it's something that God gave this man. And, and as Pastor Steve said last week, it's something that, he, that God gives us. He gives some people these things. And here it says that God gave it to him. The book of Psalms says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Deuteronomy, it says that God, he tells the Israelite people that it's he who gives the power to give wealth. And 1 Samuel says that the Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. So at times God realizes and feels that it might be good for us to be poor and low. And sometimes it's good for us to be rich and exalted. But the point is, 
It's all up to God. It's not up to us. So let's stop for a minute. Let's think about what it means to be rich. What does it mean to be rich when it comes to the entire world? There's a few websites out there that will do this for you. I've got one of them here. So we'll have a little fun. You can put in how many people are in your household and how much money that you make. And it will tell you how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. So uh, we'll say my household, two adults, three children, and you tell me how much, let's say mom and dad both work full time. What are they making? Don't be ashamed. Just yell something out there. How much together? 40,000. 40, so 80,000. All right. Here we go. So two adults, three children, $80,000 puts you in the richest 5.3% of the world's population. And this website, this particular one, wants you to give 10% of your income to something to save some people in the world. And it says if you donated 10% of your income, you would still be in the richest 6.3% of the world's population. Isn't that crazy? You want to try another number? You want to try a lower number? Just for fun? Hmm? Five. Three kids, two adults. Both mom and dad work full time. Let's go lower than 80,000. You want me to say 40,000? Okay. I still think we'll be shocked. Here we go. Come on. You're still in the richest 13.4% of the world's population. Three kids, two adults, $40,000 after taxes total. So I would say that most of us in the room were doing okay compared to the rest of the world. So God has chosen for some to be poor and brought low, and he's chosen some to be rich and exalted. It's all up to him. The tragedy here in Ecclesiastes is not that the person has the wealth or possessions or honor. The tragedy is, it says, God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Solomon then says his favorite phrase, this is vanity. That means this is, it's meaningless, it's pointless. There's not much there. He says it's vanity, and he says it is a grievous evil. And this is the same word in Hebrew that means a horrible disease. So he's saying you can have all the wealth and possessions and honor that God even gives you. And he doesn't give you the power to enjoy it. That's like a horrible disease. So often we're blessed by God with wealth and possessions, as we just saw. But we're not blessed or we're even plagued by not enjoying what God has given us. And it says that strangers enjoyed his stuff. It doesn't say that he enjoyed it with his family or shared it with his neighbors. This guy probably didn't even know what was going on with his money and his stuff. Or he was too concerned with it to not share it and to not enjoy it with his family. Or his neighbors. Listen to what God says to the Israelites. They finally 
get to the promised land, God had known what was coming. He knew what he was giving them. This land flowing with milk and honey. It was full of resources, full of riches. Here's his warning in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and rules and statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and you're full, you've built good houses and you live in them. And when your herds and flocks and cars and boats multiply, I guess he didn't say a few of those, but. And your silver and gold and investments and bank accounts multiply. And all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart will be lifted up. You'll be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground. Where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. That was his warning to the Israelites, even knowing he gave them all of this stuff. Beware lest you forget me. God didn't want his people to forget about him, even in all of the good things that he was giving them. And he didn't want them to uh, become selfish or self-centered, thinking that it was all by their hands that made themselves rich. In Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, there's a prayer. Uh, it's not from Solomon. It's a guy named Agur. Don't you wish your name was Agur? Kind of weird. He prays this prayer. It's a very difficult one in some respects. He asks God, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. So that's great. Take away lying from my lips. That's a great thing. And then he says, but give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me or necessary for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So we would all be, it'd be easy for us to pray, Lord, help me not to lie. Okay, that's an easy one. And he's not suggesting that we all even pray this verse, but what if we did? It'd be a little harder to say, Lord, don't make me poor. Okay, that's easy. Don't make me rich. Give me just what I need. Give me the food that's needful for me. Does that remind you of any kind of prayer that Jesus prayed? Or taught his disciples, give us this day our daily bread. Because, Lord, I don't want to forget you and say, Who are, who's the Lord? Who's that guy? Or I don't want to steal and make him look bad. Agur prayed to be fed with the food that's necessary for him. And what he couldn't do was look ahead to Jesus. He couldn't listen ahead to Jesus. 
But Jesus said in John 7, 37, If anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in John 6, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then later on in John 6, he told his disciples and the people that were following him, he said, feed on me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then in John 6, 66, ooh, some of his disciples like, were like, no way, dude. What's this eating you thing all about? No way. So God may give us everything that we need physically. But we may still not be satisfied. And he wants us to recognize our need for Jesus. Our need for Jesus, who is the bread of life and who can give us living water. That's the food that's needful for us, is Jesus. There's another tragic example that Solomon gives. In chapter 6 here, in verse 3, it says, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. So we saw God give a man wealth and possessions and honor, and he didn't enjoy them. And now we see God giving a man a hundred children and long life. That's something else we would want, right? A hundred kids and long life. <laughs> can't, we can't even fathom that, a hundred kids. But that's what happened. But it says... He was blessed with a hundred children. He had a hundred children and long life. So the problem was he wasn't satisfied with life's good things. He wasn't satisfied in his soul. Deep down where only God could see it says he wasn't satisfied with life's good things in his soul. Now this could mean a couple different things. Uh, this could simply mean that this guy didn't enjoy his kids or his life. He, he might have just been totally annoyed with his kids and hated children. But he kept having them, you know. It's like, get off, you know. And he, he had a long life, but every day he just couldn't stand it. So maybe God gave him good things like children and long life, but he didn't, he didn't enjoy it. The other possibility is that in spite of having all of the good things, all the kids, the long life, maybe he did enjoy them. Maybe he did enjoy his kids. Psalm says that children are a blessing. Maybe this guy realized that. And maybe he realized his long life was a great blessing, and so he lived it up and enjoyed his life. But still his soul wasn't satisfied. There are some people, and it's a warning to even myself, that our kids cannot be the top source of our joy in our life. We cannot live our lives for our children. Because if our greatest joy in life is our kids, they're going to leave one day. Then what? 
Our greatest joy in life can't be our long life that we have. Or every day that we choose to live it up and enjoy it, that can't be the greatest joy of our life. Just like this guy, our soul will not be satisfied. And as I, as I was thinking about this guy, I just, it, I couldn't help it, but Mick Jagger came to mind. I can't get no satisfaction, right? It's all going through my head all the time. This guy couldn't get no satisfaction. His soul was not satisfied. Maybe outwardly he was satisfied. He had fun, had a good time, loved kids. Better love kids if you have a hundred. But his soul was not satisfied. Listen to what David says in Psalm 17, 14. He's asking God to deliver him from a few things. And he says this, Deliver me from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. David, King David, is saying, Deliver me from guys like these guys in Ecclesiastes who only want to enjoy every day of their life, and their joy is found in their kids. David says, deliver me from these people. Because I think David knows, knows that their soul isn't satisfied. But then David says in verse 15, this is one of my favorite verses. He says, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness, and in the morning, I'll be satisfied with your likeness. David's satisfaction, even though he had kids, a kingdom, he had it all, he wanted to be satisfied with the likeness of God, not the likeness of himself, not his kids, not anything else. He said, God, make me satisfied when I wake up in the mornings with your likeness. That's what he says. A lot of us want to be satisfied with our likeness in the morning when we look in the mirror. But David says, satisfy me with your likeness. And I want to behold your face in righteousness. You know, to behold something is to look on it and just be in awe of it. A lot of times, and like this man, probably he was in awe of his own life. He was in awe of his own kids. Like men back then, they didn't high-five each other for how much they could bench press or what kind of car they drove. It was how many kids you have. hundred? Right? That's what it was. In Ecclesiastes, it also says that this man has no burial. So he's got a hundred kids, but he wasn't even buried. He had a lonely death. His kids didn't even bury him. And in, in in that region of the world, you got buried within 24 hours of death. It was a big deal. It is a big deal still to this day. So this man didn't even have a burial, even though he had 100 kids. And it says this, that a stillborn child is better off than him. In verse 4, he says, For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in, and in darkness its name is covered. This is simply saying that what a stillborn child and this man have in common is that what should be a good thing ends up in death. With the birth of a baby, it should be a great happy thing, but it ended up in death and darkness. With a great long life and a lot of kids, it ended up in a lonely 
lonely death, and no burial. Both are not or were not what they should have been. And that's a tragedy. And it says that their names are covered in darkness, meaning their names are lost and forgotten and covered by death. Verse 5 goes on to describe why the stillborn baby is actually better off than the man. And it says that the baby has not seen the son or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The baby found true rest rather than this man. He had a long life but never enjoyed any of it. But the stillborn baby found rest. This man had all the time in the world to find the rest that he needed. But he didn't. He was never satisfied. Never had any rest in his soul. Even with all that he had. When it comes to finding rest, we know that Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God's desire for us is that our soul finds rest. He's pretty clear that your soul isn't going to find rest in the stuff that he gives you. But it's in Jesus, and Jesus said, come to me and I'll give you rest. A rest from trying to satisfy yourself and earn things on your own. Um, in the church world, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they, they have a thing and study this thing called the Shorter Catechism. It's pretty interesting. You should look it up sometime. And it's basically a question and answer way of learning what the Bible says, what is theology, those kind of things. Makes it somewhat easy. And the first question it asks, it says, what is the chief end or the chief purpose of man? Does anybody know the answer? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of man. Is that the chief end for you? To glorify God? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Is that your chief end? Or is your chief end enjoying your life, enjoying your kids, having a good time, trying to satisfy your own self? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because He's the only thing you're going to get to enjoy forever. If you come to Jesus to find rest. And in Ecclesiastes 6, again, verse 6 and 7 are statements of truth. Verse 6, it says, Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place, the grave. Everybody's going to die, but I think the question Solomon is saying is, how are you going to live on your way to the grave? Are you going to have rest for your soul in God? Are you going to be enjoying God and what he's given you? Are you going to let strangers enjoy your stuff and you don't even enjoy it with other people? Verse 7 says, All the toil of man is for his mouth or his stomach. 
yet his appetite is not satisfied. That's just a condition of the human heart, isn't it? We work in toils, we can get stuff for us to consume. Then we know we can work a little more and get a little more. As we heard last week, I think it was Rockefeller, right? They said, how much is, how much do you need? Just a little more. I just need a little bit more, then I'll be good. A little bit more, and I'll be happy. A little bit more, and I'll be joyful. That's our human heart. But that's not the way we as Christians, followers of Christ, live. Our joy comes from Jesus. Our joy comes from the Father. Our joy doesn't come from the stuff we have. God allows us to enjoy it, and that's a good thing. But ultimately, our joy needs to be in him. Then in verse 8, it asks us a few questions. He says, for what advantage has the wise man over the fool? So a lot of times, you know, I've read Ecclesiastes and you hear these questions and they sound a little sarcastic and you kind of pass over them. But I think the questions are there and have an answer. What advantage has the wise man over the fool? So if we think about chapter 5 and chapter 6, what's the advantage that a wise man has? Well, I think... A wise man would learn to know how to recognize God's provision. It's God who has given you the good things in your life. I think a wise man also would know how to enjoy those things. God, you gave them to me. Help me to enjoy them with my friends and with my family. A wise man would know how to enjoy his kids. Do you enjoy your kids? I know there's times where we don't enjoy our kids, but... We should enjoy them. God has given them to us as a gift. And you don't have a hundred. A wise man knows how to surround himself with families and neighbors, family and neighbors, to share what he has. A wise man knows how to make the most of every day he has here on the earth, whether it's a short life or a long life. But most of all, a wise man would realize the greatest joy that we have in life is only found in Jesus. The second question, verse 8, asks, it says, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So you've got a poor guy who knows how to interact with people and talk to his neighbors and talk to his family. And have an enjoyable personality that people want to talk to. What advantage might that guy have? Well, he doesn't have the wealth. He doesn't have the possessions. He might not have all the honor as the rich guy. So the advantage might be that he has the respect of people. And the admiration of people. And the enjoyment of people. And this guy probably had a good burial as well. And a big funeral where people came because he impacted so many people's lives. That's the advantage that this poor man has. And it's not because he's poor. It's because of how he interacted with the people around him. I think Solomon's trying to tell us that our love for God and, for the, and the love for those around us is what is the most essential thing. And isn't that what Jesus said? When asked, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Verse 9 states another truth. He says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and striving after the wind. Here he's simply telling us, I think, that we're not to let our fleshly appetites drive us. We're not to let just whatever makes us happy that we're supposed to go do it. It makes me think of uh, Looney Tunes, you know, where the grandma would make the pie. She'd open up the windowsill, right, put the pie there to, to cool off, and then you'd see the smell and the little steam going off of it, and it, you know, goes through the neighborhood, and it goes up the nostrils of the dog, or Sylvester the cat, and then, you know, they're asleep, and they get dragged by the smell over through the trees, you know, and they get up to, you know, Granny's windowsill to get the pie, and, you know, no, bad kitty, right? (laughs) That's what happened. You slam it down on, on that cat's fingers. We're not to let our appetites control us because that's not what God intends for us. There might be consequences that we don't want. That was a little harder than last night. <laughs> so it's better... Ecclesiastes says to to use our eyes, to observe and be grateful. What has God given me? What can I be grateful for? Instead of a longing for stuff that's not ours. We need to see where God has put us in life. And be grateful. And be filled with joy because of what God has given us. Verse 10 kind of continues that and says, Whatever has come to be has already been named. Basically, it means that what's happened has happened and you can't change it. Then it says, and it is known what man is. We know what we are, right? The eagles sang about it. Dust in the wind. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground. In James 4, it says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then poof. You vanish. So what is man? We're we're dust and we're steam that comes off a boiling pot of water. We're here for a little bit and then we're gone. And he says, and and that he we have to know that man is not able to dispute with one stronger than he, Ecclesiastes says. We're not able to dispute with our creator. He made us. We're dust. We're steam, vapor that goes away. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So at one point or another, we need to realize that we're dust and God is God. And we need to submit to his thoughts and his words and his ways. And that those are so much better than ours. They're so much better than our words. And Solomon says in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? So he's saying that we use a lot of words. And the more words we use, the more meaningless vanity stuff comes out of our mouth. And I think that speaks a little bit to our culture that we want 
as many people to hear what words we have to say or read them on a screen as they're scrolling through. And we think that our words are so important. And if we can just get 100,000 people to listen to my words, I can become what they call an influencer. Do you know that's a real word? And that there are people out there and young people who would say, if I said, what do you want to be? They would say, I want to be an influencer. That's like a real thing. There's an there's a, uh, uh, Instagrammer out there. And uh, I just read this this week. This girl, uh, if she posts one picture, she can make $65,000. Because so many people follow her. One picture. Takes four seconds. So, what is the advantage to man? Well, the advantages are earthly advantages. There, there are advantages if we can get 100,000 people or a million people to hear our words or see our video or look at our picture. We could get really rich. That's the advantage. But imagine if the more words we had were seasoned with God's words. What if we humbled ourselves and said, you know what, my, my words really don't matter because your life's going to go poof and the Facebook world's going to forget about you. If our words became God's words, it might not be full of vanity and meaninglessness. What would the advantage be? Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.33 said, Just as I try to please everything, or everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many. And what's the advantage? That they might be saved. The advantage that we as followers of Jesus need to seek in our lives with our words is that many people would get saved. A lot of times the advantage we want is somebody to click a like button. Ooh. The advantage God wants is that many people, when they hear our words, they get saved because our words are God's words. That's the advantage Paul wanted for many people. Who do you need to see or who needs to hear your words and get saved? Who do you know that needs to hear God's words of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus for them? So that they can have the advantage of getting saved. And finally, in verse 12, Ecclesiastes says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? What's the answer to that? Who knows what's good for us? God. Yeah, God. God knows. God knows what's good for us. Are you learning more and more what's good for you? The next question, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What's the answer to that? Same thing, God. God can tell us what's coming after we're done with this life. If we've put our faith in Christ, we'll spend an eternity with him. If we have not, we'll spend an eternity separated from him in hell. So 
So I have a few questions for you. My first question is this. Thinking about the first man in Ecclesiastes who had all the wealth and all the possessions, but God didn't give him the power to enjoy it. What could be the key to God giving us joy? Could God have given that guy joy? I think he could. There's a little uh, golden nugget verse I found this week. In Isaiah chapter 29, God is describing um, to, or the future and transformation he's going to do in the hearts of people. And he says this, The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. The meek shall obtain fresh joy. New joy. Maybe the key to God giving us more joy that we need is our meekness. Meekness is basically when we yield our rights and our power in order to humbly serve and obey someone greater than us for the good of other people. We put away our advantages and say, what about the many? And who's out there that's greater than me that I can obey and listen to? And follow. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest person who ever lived. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of power as, you know, the prince of Egypt. But he submitted. He submitted to God for the good of many, many, many people. So maybe when we're meek and we give up our rights and our power to follow Christ... He'll give us a fresh joy that we haven't seen before. The next few questions are for you to answer. What has God given you that you can begin to share with family and enjoy with your neighbors? Maybe it's your grill in your backyard. Maybe it's, I don't know, your couch and a cup of coffee. Maybe your neighbor needs a car to drive. Maybe your neighbor needs some help in the yard. What do you have that you can share with your family and your friends so that you don't go through life selfishly and not even really knowing what you have and how it's being used? You know, men, we could have a million tools in our, you know, our garage and they're hanging there. They look all nice and clean and we just like to go out and look at them. To use them. How can you begin to enjoy your kids more? That's another question. Those of you who have kids, I don't mean you have to spend $100 on them to make them happy. That's not what I mean. How can you just enjoy them more and not be so annoyed with them and shut up? You know. Again, you don't have 100 and Lastly, will you begin to pray and thank God for what he has given you? And ask him to help make you content. Paul said that he knew the secret of being content. Whether he had abundance or he had need. Whether he was hungry or had plenty of food. He said his secret in Philippians 4.13 was what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The all things there was knowing how to live with what God's given me. That was his secret to being content. And maybe, maybe you take on Agur's prayer. 
that God gives you what you need, maybe not everything you want. That he would maybe make you content with what you have, not make you poor, not make you rich. Maybe another question would be, have we, like the Israelites at times did, have we forgotten God a little bit in all that we have? So I want you guys to think about that stuff this week and maybe, you know, answer those questions. James says, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. We're to be doers of the word. We hear a lot when we're here, don't we? We need to be a doer. So what will we do? What will you do? Well, as we've been doing, uh, we've, we've been having some um, testimonies from a few people uh, through the Ecclesiastes series. So I'm going to ask Kate Kotz. Where's Kate? Where'd she go? There she is. She's going to come up and share about the power of God, the goodness of God uh, in her life. So. Our shared faith in Jesus strengthens us, allowing us to weather and withstand the tribulations that confront us. Be comforted in knowing Jesus never forsakes us, even in our darkest hours. He knows how we feel, whether we are in pain, feeling lost, feeling dejection, or feeling powerless. Along with the trials, Jesus provides rays of hope and sunshine. I am amazed by the amount of people praying for my recovery from lung cancer. Three young sisters, age four, they're twins, and eight pray for me daily, along with a Gehanna Lincoln High School senior named Reagan, who brought tears to my eyes, touching my heart, when she asked if she could pray for me. My small group prays together to strengthen one another. Church pastors, elders, and ministry staff continuously pray for all of us and each other. Jesus hears each and every one of our prayers, answering them to proclaim his glory according to his timing. My family, from my son Ray to my far-flung cousins around America, follow my treatments and make me smile. I am proud to call them kin. Friends from early childhood to current times contact me on Facebook, meet me for lunch, perform gracious acts of kindness, and also make me smile. God surprises me by placing Shasta daisies along my paths, provides steady employment, health care, and a really fast Mustang 5.0 convertible. Yeah. <laughs> along with his greatest gift of all, eternal salvation. I do not fear death. He went before me to prepare a room. In heaven, we will no longer hurt, be cancerous, lonely, or in dire straits. Our loved ones will miss us, so we need to share the good news so we can spend eternity with them. After watching miracles from heaven this week with, this week with my small group, God put the song, I will praise you, in the storm on the radio. It was what I needed to hear, combining his promises with my favorite Psalm 121. 
I am sure, God, you would have wiped our tears away, but it's still raining. I barely hear your whisper through the wane. I am with you as your mercy falls. I will praise you in this storm that you are who you are, no matter where I am. Every tear I've tried, cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. I will praise you in this storm. I lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun will not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. I stand firm in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kate. I see her driving around that Mustang. It's gray, right? Silvery gray. She'll race you at a stoplight, I bet, right? All right. Well, um, God, God is good, and God is the one who can give us great joy in the midst of um, being low or being exalted, no matter where he puts us. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your words. We thank you for uh, the few examples that we read in Ecclesiastes. And Lord, when, when you give us great gifts and great things um, as a good father, I pray that you'll help us to enjoy them. But most of all, help us to enjoy you. And Lord, I just ask that you will uh, just infuse us with fresh joy as we um, just continue to be meek and submit to you. And Lord, I just thank you for who you are, that you are so much greater than us. You're a creator and uh, we are made out of dust. And Lord, I just pray that you will help us to see how great your thoughts and your ways and your words are. And help us to make your words ours so that the advantage many people around us has is that they will come to faith in Jesus. And I just pray this all in his name. Amen.